So this week we are, I can't believe it's week 10 already. Um, we're doing post-feminism. Feel free to jump in at any time um, as we normally kind of do. Um, Gemma, you might need to, oh no, you are muted. Um, that's fine. Um, okay. So, um, all right, let's get started. Sorry, I'm just trying to work out who's here. And so we've got Nick, but Nick's video is not on. Okay. So um, I'll give you a little outline of the lecture, as I normally do. We are using um, Rosalind Gill as our kind of main theorist here, but not quite in the same way as the previous theorists um, that we've used. She's not like a sort of mega, she is mega in her field, but she's not a sort of um, super theorist like Foucault or some of these others or Fanon that we've looked at. So. Um, so I'm not going to give you a biography of her. It's not as relevant um, for this particular week. So there's going to be four parts to the lecture. It's just so weird seeing you both like right there and also right here. Okay, so the first part is um, I'm going to give you a brief history of feminisms, plural, intentionally plural on the end. Um, many of you will already know much or all of it, and so I'm not going to sort of dwell on it. Um, then we're going to talk about um, post-feminism and what it is, because it's not really, strictly speaking, a theory of its own. And there are, um, this is a kind of very live area, and so there's different ways of understanding actually what, as a noun, post-feminism refers to. And it can be quite analytically confusing if we don't kind of iron that out. Then in the third part of the lecture... I'm going to run through six kind of core concerns and insights from the literature on post-feminism. And then in the final, the fourth and final part of the lecture, we will bring it back to the question um, of power. Does that sound all right to everyone? As always, please jump in at any time. Okay, so firstly, with a brief history of feminisms. So the purpose of this is to... Um, and the sort of number one thing I want you to take home from this is that there is no single version of feminism. So when people say they're a feminist or they're not a feminist or they love or hate feminism, it's a bit of a nonsense thing to say in some ways because, you, you know, there are so many varieties of feminism, um, some of which people, you know, you may strongly identify with one and strongly reject another. And so I think we need to just be really careful that whenever we're talking about feminism, we are conceptualizing it in this kind of plural way. And many of the criticisms of feminism may apply to some or even many branches of feminism, but not to feminism as a whole. So um, we're going to go through a few waves. You're all familiar with the term of waves, first wave, second wave. Okay. So first wave feminism uh, was the late 19th and early 20th century, right? Think suffragettes, right? That's what we're talking about here. Um, it was a very Western and middle-class movement of predominantly white women seeking legal equality, particularly around voting. And so the arguments behind this were arguments around the social, moral and intellectual equality of women, that women are just as capable of voting, just as capable of being legal subjects as men. Does anyone know when Australian women got the vote? Australian women or like Australian women in general? 
the first date. I'll take that. That's a good uh, wasn't answer. It? it was. Yeah. Do you know the year? Eight. And it was like the first place to do so, wasn't it? Yep. Um, eight. Yep. 1895. Yeah. Nice job, Andrew. Yeah. So those of us who are women or identify as women when we go on Saturday and get our democracy sausage, mine will be vegan um, because I live in Brunswick and you can get vegan democracy sausages in Brunswick. Um, I will be very grateful to the women who fought for that um, way back then. So South Australia was the first in the Commonwealth, in fact, to give women the vote. And the various states granted women voting rights between 1895 and 1908. So this idea that um, feminism is a fight for women's equal rights before the law is what we call liberal feminism. So what's liberalism? Some of you should know this. Politics and IR students should know this. Liberalism. Leah? I actually don't really know. Um, is it just about, I mean, yeah, no, don't know. Give it a stab. Try and make something up, but no. Make something up. <laughs> um, is it, you know, I, all I can think about is neoliberalism. So is it similar yep. to that in a way? Yep. Yep. But not as economic, maybe? Yep. Yep. It was also economic. Um, so both liberalism and neoliberalism are basically about the idea of a small state, right? And neoliberalism right. is kind of liberalism on steroids. Um, there are lots of different ideas. Like liberalism is a massive, massive field of political thought um, and, you know, political theory, international relations theory. But the kind of um, the crux of it is the idea that, um, in a democratic society, in a good society, the state should be small, it should stay out of the way, and its primary role is to ensure that everyone is sufficiently equal in public life that they can go about doing whatever they want to do in private life, right? It has no view on what people do in private. Um, but it, it is a strong, like it holds equality as a very, very firm kind of central value, but a particular conception of equality, which in its traditional form is equality before the law. So um, that means equality of opportunity. Everyone has the equal right to vote. Every women, for example, should have equal right to run for office. As long as the law allows for that, then for a liberal feminist, the task is finished, right? Um, as long as the law allows for it. Um, there was not much sense of women being um, equal to men but different, with different needs, just equal, right? Just equal was enough. The idea is that legal and political norms are the source of women's subordination in society. So if we can fix those norms, then we can allow for women to have an equal standing. So the right to vote is a very obvious one. Um, opportunities for women in parliament, legal reforms to prohibit discrimination, for example, in pay or, or in employment. These are the kinds of things that liberal feminists pursue. And there are some feminists that many of you will probably admire, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was classic liberal feminist, right? Her life's work was devoted to fixing the law so it no longer discriminated against women. So this kind of work served a very important purpose at the beginning, like in first wave feminism. 
it still serves a very important purpose. We absolutely do not want inequalities in our law um, or discrimination in our law. Um, and liberal feminism remains a pretty popular form of feminism among the same kind of cohort who originally kick-started it, so middle-class white women in the West. Um, it's appealing because the theoretical tools have practical um, counterparts, right? If your kind of theoretical understanding of power and subordination is that it resides in the law, then you can fix the law. Like there's a clear target and there's a clear process for changing it. And, you know, that's appealing, right? Like that's much more appealing than some of the other issues that we, um, that we might associate with um, women's subordination because there's just this like practical um, thing that we can do about it. And so lots of people find that appealing. So how does liberal feminism understand power then, right? So it understands power as a resource that is unequally distributed between men and women. Amy Allen talks about this in that first section on liberal feminism in her Stanford Encyclopedia article. So if this is what power is, if it's a resource that's unequally distributed, then the task is to distribute it, redistribute it. And changing the law is a way to do that, right? But as Amy Allen explains, she draws on the work of Iris Marion Young, who remains one of my favourite ever political theorists, one of the first ones I ever read, actually, when I was an undergrad, and I still love and adore her. She was writing in the early 90s. And she wrote some stuff that um, was radical at the time, but that we now take for granted. And I think that's a mark of like some extraordinary impact in the world, if you want to talk about theory changing the world. So she wrote about how um, she wrote about the shortcomings of this liberal idea of feminism. She also wrote about it with respect to other identity groups as well, not just women. And she basically said that we might question how helpful it is to think about power as a resource in that way. It is, if you like, a commodity approach to power. And where did we last see that in this unit? Andrew? Yeah quite some time ago, right? So this kind of liberal conception of power or, and liberal feminism that arises from it is not aimed at transforming the nature of power structures. It's aimed at redistributing power, but not transforming the nature of power. It's also very constrained in its understanding of where we find power. It's very limited to the public realm, right, to law and politics. And as we all know, this is definitely not the only place that we encounter power. Okay. Tell me to pause at any time. I know much of this is probably already familiar to you. So if I'm going too fast, just shout. Um, sorry, Sam, I, I have a question. Um, yep. Since uh, liberalism historically, its focus is on individualism and individual rights yeah. specifically, um, it doesn't mean necessarily that they don't have something to say about societal power. Doesn't it just mean that it's just specifically focused on the relationship with the state? So that's just, that's all its focus. It's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily deny that society um, 
pressures in, in, in different ways. It's just simply focused on the individual versus the state. So I, I've, I believe I've read liberal thinkers who have talked about um, bigger sort of forms of power, but it's just that their focus is on the individual versus the Can state. Can you give us an so, example? Um, uh, for example, I was reading uh, in uh, America, there's a movement called, uh, uh, they call themselves Bleeding Heart Libertarians. And basically what they talk about, they're like very strong liberals, obviously, because it's all about individualism for them. But at the same time, they'll talk about the need. The re what distinguishes them is that they talk strongly about the need that despite individualism, the final goal is not freedom for all, like many libertarians would say, but the actual final goal is, um, is social justice. So they'll say that uh, only insofar as it helps social justice and otherwise we can therefore uh, modify this and say uh, we need social welfare, we need strong social welfare and public health care and things like that, which go beyond. So they'll start with the framework of, of, of sort of um, uh, individual rights uh, as, a, as a means to an end of, let's say, uh, uh, equality or, or, or less power, but they don't necessarily limit it. Is it also true to say that there are feminists who do the same because I can imagine it being the case that the they're just focusing on the state and, and legal things but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily restricting themselves from the other discussions that go on so um because I have seen liberals do that and that's that's what really I'm asking so I think so when we talk about liberalism as a political theory it's an old political theory so the stuff you're reading now is not traditional liberalism Right. It's a it's an evolved form of liberalism, partly because there was a recognition that those traditional forms of liberalism were really, really limited. And so, yes, like people, liberals, liberal feminists, you know, suffragettes and so on were concerned about um, the kind of broader patterns of kind of social relation that, that lead to these particular circumstances. But I mean, I think in a way you're splitting hairs a little bit like it, the goal of liberal feminists was legal reform. That was their kind of target. And then they often did stop there. And that was the shortcoming of liberal feminism. It is a kind of very old fashioned and traditional form of liberalism that we don't really see very much today. And I would question whether someone who was advocating for like a really strong welfare state really would be, whether you really could call them liberal in the proper sense. Yeah, they may call themselves that, but from a political theory perspective, I think they're probably doing something more than liberalism. You know, that like someone arguing from this is why we make a distinction, for example, between liberal democracies, which it's all a bit of a continuum, right? But a liberal democracy leans very kind of far towards um, a minimal state and a social democracy like we see in Scandinavian countries, for example, that does believe that more is required than equality under the law, that there have to be certain kind of, um, like you're saying, welfare provisions and other kinds of affirmative action, things like that, that go beyond a small state and beyond formal legal equality to actually kind of lift certain sectors of society up so that they are able to enjoy that equality under the law. Yeah. So... Yeah, those those bleeding heart libertarians sound very politically confused to me, which is fine. Like that's the nature of political life, right? People often hold um, political views that are a little bit kind of inconsistent. And, you know, for various reasons that 
Nick, you might be interested in taking me down decolonial path. I don't actually think that's necessarily a problem personally, but that's a whole nother discussion, right? But for the purposes of understanding feminism, the different waves of feminism and their approach to power, the point is that that early wave was quite limited. It was important. I'm extremely grateful for it, but it had limitations. And that brings us to the second wave, right, which took place in the 1960s up until, you know, people debate that there's no kind of clear consensus around when one wave stopped and another started, um, but roughly around the 1980s, 1960s to 1980s, um, particularly in the US, but spread beyond there to other Western countries. And this wave was doing exactly what we've just talked about, trying to draw attention to the sources of women's subordination beyond the state, beyond the law, beyond politics. And so you may have heard, I hope you've heard the slogan, the personal is political. Yep. So that came from this wave of feminism. And so their thematic concerns were things like equality within relationships um, like within marriages, but also um, within other kinds of like non-marital sexual relationships, um, other relationships within the home to do with things like reproductive rights, like the idea that maybe a woman should be part of a conversation or should be able to choose how many children she has um, uh, and other kind of family dynamics, relationships within the workplace, so things like equal pay, respect, um, sexual harassment, discrimination, opportunity, um, and also sexual violence, um, not just in public, but also within the home. Right, so these are many of the kinds of things that some of these um, liberal feminists did do some work on, like equal pay, for example, under the law, but others were sort of moving into territory that isn't strictly and wholly governed by the law. Nick, did I see your hand tentatively? Yeah, what's, the, um, what's this wave called, sorry? Second. Sorry? Second. The second. second wave. Oh, second wave. Okay. Yeah. After the first. Sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> if only all the questions you asked me were that simple. <laughs> all right. So um, in this kind of second wave, the idea of the nature of power and of women's subordination was much more expansive than under a kind of traditional liberal feminist model, but it still tends to be broadly conceived of as a relation of domination, right? That there's a sense of it being power over, that men have power over women, or possibly a commodity model that men have a lot of power and women have only a little bit of power and that it needs to be redistributed. But in either sense, there's a kind of resonance with the idea of domination. Right, so that was characteristic of the second wave. Then we had the third wave, right? And this is when stuff starts to get really messy. So, sorry, just before you move on. Yeah. So is that still like that commodity approach? Yeah, so, um, so that would be one possible conceptualization of power in the second wave, but then some are also conceived of it more as um, a so power as a relation, yeah. but a relation of domination and subordination, like quite an absolute um, kind of strong. Yeah. So Marxist. Um, yeah, like, yeah, closer to Marx, but uh, yeah. But whereas Marx was very interested in, well, we're going to get to this in the third wave, he was very interested in how to alter that relation. Yeah. A lot of the emphasis in second wave feminism was on 
like recognizing it. So we'll make a bit more sense when I come to talk about the idea of empowerment. Yeah. So there's subtle differences here, right? And, you know, there are, there were lots of really insightful um, theorists working in, in the time of the second wave. Like these are sort of really big, broad brushstrokes characterizations here. Um, okay. So then in the third wave, so from like the 1980s, 1990s onwards, the third wave started to respond to several different dimensions of second wave feminism. So second wave feminism had, you know, a kind of in many ways kind of liberal sense of what um, power is and a, a liberal focus on laws and so on, combined with a broader sense of power as a, as a force that operates in private as well as in public. Then the third wave started to go, okay, things kind of cracked open in feminism at this stage. And this is particularly when we started to see a real proliferation of disagreement among feminists and a kind of stronger emergence of lots of different strands of um, feminist thought at this time. Um, so part of what the third wave was grappling with, right, I'm going to give you three things that the third wave grappled with. One was that second wave feminism had engendered a big backlash, right? And this is when we learned, it was during second wave feminism that we learned as a society to hate feminists, to resist saying the word, to paint feminists as women who burn their bras and have hairy legs, right? All of that is backlash. That's backlash against the claims and the kind of projects of second wave feminists. Um, the idea that feminists hate men, for example, um, that they want to take men's power away from them. These kind of really simplistic um, and really quite often quite hateful um, representations of feminists and feminism um, were, you know, they were very strong. They still are very strong. Um, you know, you've all, I'm sure, heard of incel, the incel movement, involuntary celibates who go around planning to kill women because they won't sleep with them. This is this kind of backlash against um, feminism. The second thing that third wave feminists were grappling with was um, the shortcomings of second wave feminism, that there was still so much to be done, still so much inequality within families, still so much sexual violence, inequality in the workplace, gender pay gap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. And there was sort of, I think, a bit of exasperation at this point that like We've been fighting for this for a long time and yet there's still so much that we need to do. And then a third thing um, was a lack of diversity in feminist movements, that they tended to be um, middle-class white. It was a middle-class white woman's game. Second wave feminism was a middle-class white woman's game. That was the, the sense. Um, so we saw a lot of diversification in this period, diversification of what it means to be a feminist and diversification of people involved in feminist struggles. Um, in particular, women of colour in, um, in America, especially black women and queer women, particularly at that time, lesbian women, sort of saying, like, we need to be part of this as well. Your concern, for example, like lesbian women would say, your obsession with the idea that, you know, um, everyone is in a heterosexual marriage is, you know, that doesn't account for my struggles is what people would say. And black women similarly felt, Bell Hooks famously said that a black woman's first depression is on the basis of her race and her second depression is on the basis of her gender. 
right? So lots of people um, starting to kind of splinter um, what feminism meant during this time. Um, there was less of a focus on legal and political change, partly because a lot of legal change had occurred, you know, which is good. Um, there was also in some parts of third wave feminism, increasingly less focus on social change as well. So then you might be wondering, okay, if they're not focusing on legal change and they're not focusing on social change, what kind of change are they focusing on? Any guesses? Cultural. Maybe changing feminism? No. Changing the self. Right? As a feminist, my responsibility is to fix myself. So definitely still many feminists focusing on social change, some focusing on legal change. But there became, you know, for the first time in the history of the feminist movement, an interest in the self as a site of change. But the self is a woman self, right? Not a man self, not in that third wave. It was a woman self. So... Once we get to this kind of third wave phase, there's really like several different understandings of power circulating and influencing the way that different feminists understand the problem of women's subordination. One was the idea of power as domination, which was part of second wave feminism. Um, this was prevalent particularly amongst radical feminists, um, some of whom as a result of this idea that power is just this kind of absolute form of domination of men over women would advocate separatism. Um, some people started to see power as empowerment, which we're going to talk about a lot more. Um, there's really no agreement on what that means, though, which we'll come to. Um, intersectional feminists in particular, so Bell Hooks, who I mentioned, Audre Lorde, there are many, many others, um, saw power as a relation, which is an idea we've come across repeatedly in this unit. And then if we want to transform women's subordination, we have to transform that relation, right? And it's not just a relation of domination. Um, we also saw in particular at this time, the emergence of queer theory during third wave feminism, kind of splintered, like strongly influenced by feminist theory, but splintered off um, and it was typically post-structuralist, meaning Foucault. I don't know if you remember we talked about Foucault as being against Marxism, against Enlightenment and against structuralism, so post-structuralist. So um, a kind of having a Foucauldian understanding of power as operating, you know, in this kind of, um, in the micro-politics of every day, operating through our bodies, um, through our kind of everyday interactions and so on. So really this kind of real splintering and proliferation. And in the Amy Allen piece that you read from the Stanford Encyclopedia where she runs through all of these different under feminist understandings of power, this all, like much of this emerged in this third wave. And some people say we are now in the fourth wave. And the fourth wave may be the post-feminist wave, right? It's a live issue. So people have been writing about post-feminism for about, 
15 years, maybe a little bit longer now, 15, 20 years. Um, it's very difficult for something to become a wave or to recognise something as a wave when you're in it, but I think we might be in it. And so the fourth wave is also characterised by like a lot of splintering and a lot of different understandings of what it means to be feminist. Um, a really strong emphasis on intersectionality and this idea that women are oppressed in various ways um, and that a white woman's experience of oppression is not the same as a black woman's, it's not the same as a queer woman's, as a disabled woman's, as an Indigenous woman's, etc. and that we need to understand the multiple axes upon which someone can be oppressed or the multiple axes on which someone can be privileged, including women. So fourth wave has a strong emphasis on that. Um, analysis of social media has been a major, major theme in the fourth wave. I need not explain that to you. You grew up with it. You get why that would matter for a feminist, right? Right? No? Yes? Why would it matter for a feminist, Gemma? Well, I guess... Women's bodies and behaviors are scrutinized like more than ever. Exactly. It's like a magnifying glass. Yeah. Well, let's see what's wrong with this. Yeah. That's yeah. Exactly, exactly. So whatever, however hard it was for me when I was an awkward teenager, like I didn't have social media, thank God. And I am thankful for that every day. So, um, so social media, as you know, as Gemma has said, like it's in the West, fundamentally transformed um, the way women and men and other people experience the world. Um, the key themes, though, have um, in the fourth wave, this is one of the reasons why people might think it's a wave. There's a really heavy focus on sexual harassment and sexual violence. like me too, right? Rape culture. That has become in many ways like the sort of um, fulcrum of, of feminism over recent, over the last decade or two. And some of the other issues that previous waves of feminists fought for and fought about have kind of receded a little bit for reasons that we'll um, talk about. Um, the fourth wave is also characterised by an attitude of incredulity. We are incredulous that this shit is still happening, right? Hands up if you feel that way. Incredulous, like shocked, surprised, disbelieving. I'm not sure I'm surprised. It's like, it's like when your mom's like, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> yeah. It's not surprising, but it's not. Yeah, yeah. I feel incredulous. I can't believe it. I'm not. Maybe I'm not surprised, but I also can't believe it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's also a feature of this particular wave of feminism: is this yeah. sense of like just shaking your head. You know, so um, some attitudes that we see among feminists or women in general in this period are more 
feminist than others. Right, and so this brings us to the second part of the lecture on post-feminism and what it is. So I'm gonna show you a picture. It's a little bit inappropriate. I'm showing you for pedagogical purposes. It is actually, I think, important to see it. So I grew up in the, I was a teenager in the 90s and I remember um, this particular ad. So you would have possibly seen it before. It was massive billboard for a Wonder Bra. Really, the image is kind of the whole point, right? So McRobbie, who's one of the kind of, um, she was an early analyst of post-feminism, she credits this ad with being the turning point from third to fourth wave and into this period of what she thinks is post-feminism. So in this ad, right, there's several things going on. So I knew in the 1990s like that it was wrong to objectify women, right? And this came out, I think, in, I should have, sorry, I should have had the exact date, but in the late 90s, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure I was in late high school. And the idea here is that um, feminism is taken into account in this ad, right? We know when we look at it that when she's not meant to be doing this, we're not meant to be seeing ads of women in their lingerie when we drive down the freeway, right? Feminism is taken into account. And to get the joke, you have to know that. Does this make sense? So we know that's wrong to objectify women. But this one is different because she's objectifying herself and she's enjoying it, right? That is the message that this ad is sending, that is new. This is what makes it different from all the objectifying ads of women that came before it. This woman is choosing to objectify herself. We know when we look at it that it's making a kind of sly comment about feminism, and femininity and womanhood. And so um, you're supposed to be kind of in on the joke. And this way, whether you're feminist or not feminist, you still get to enjoy the ad and ideally go and buy yourself a Wonder Bra or buy your wife a Wonder Bra, right? That was the idea. So it has this kind of inoculating effect. You know what an inoculation is, right? You all just had one for COVID. It's when you give yourself a little injection of something to make the real thing hurt less. So it has this inoculating effect. By taking feminism into account, it makes it kind of immune to a feminist critique. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know that's the critique, but this is different because she's choosing it, right? And that is actually an incredibly powerful move because in one foul swoop, it kind of undermines the possibility of critiquing this kind of advertising and this kind of, you know, um, representation of women. It's very, very, very clever and troubling. Um, and so post-feminism is kind of open to analysis of contradictions like this. You know, we've talked a lot in this unit about how I want you to get away from binary thinking and absolute thinking. Right, Andrew, you just emailed me the other day with a question like that. And I was like, you know, so getting away from that kind of thinking and allowing yourself to go, okay, I think two opposite things are happening at the same time here. You have to be able to do that in order to make sense of this discussion of post-feminism. So in this ad, she's simultaneously feminist and anti-feminist, right? And so um, 
this is what the study of post-feminism is about. It's like if this is the kind of advertising that we're seeing, um, what what has happened to feminism? What is feminism now? Would you say like with things like sex work, for example, yeah. that like that's where that type of argument comes in where you have like yeah. women in favour of sex workers they yeah. choose yeah. to participate. Exactly, them. exactly. Um, and then you have like feminists against sex work yeah. because they feel it yeah. to be yeah so there's lots of different arguments that it's degrading yeah that it's objectifying or also that um, women who choose to do it actually don't have choice it's not a free choice yeah so yeah there's um yeah that is at, at same with like pornography yeah so what is post-feminism then i'm going to give you three yes three different possible ways of understanding what post-feminism is, like as a noun. So one way is that it is a period of time after feminism. Post typically means after, post-colonialism, post-neoliberalism, etc. Post referring to a time after, but in, in scholarly terms when we say post like that, we mean after but still shaped by. Right, that's why we talk about post-colonialism, for example. We are after the period of colonialism, but it is not behind us exactly, right? So in this sense, um, there are within the idea that fem post-feminism is a time after feminism, there are uh, three different possibilities of what it means to be after feminism. The first one um, is that it is the death of feminism, right? It's like a backlash and an undoing of feminism. It's a retrograde, backwards kind of move. It's undoing feminism, right? That's one possibility. A second possibility is that we're after feminism because feminism won and it's redundant and we don't need it anymore because we got everything we were fighting for, right? So that's kind of the opposite argument. Any guesses what the third one is? Lucy? Nope. <laughs> Give it a go. Um, okay, I've asked you a really hard question. I'm not gonna let you hang there for too long. The third one is that it is both those things it is after because we won and it is after because actually we're undoing everything that feminism won deeply deeply contradictory sense of what it is to be after feminism but that's exactly what's happening in that ad right we can objectify ourselves now because feminism won right and at the same time i'm going to happily objectify myself like that's what's going on in that ad Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So a second possibility for understanding what post-feminism is, um, is that it is a critical term applied by, usually by scholars, to a social phenomenon, right? It's a description of a social phenomenon. This is what Gill does when she calls it a sensibility. 
So grammatically speaking, this is quite an important point because it means that Gil, for example, is not a post-feminist. She is very much not a post-feminist. She is anti-post-feminism. And most theorists of post-feminism are not post-feminist. They're critical of post-feminism. So if you're going to talk about it in that way, then you have to be referring to post-feminism as a social phenomenon, a culture, a sensibility, something like that. So post-feminism is an object of study rather than a theory. So we don't really have post-feminist theory in the same way we have feminist theory because everyone who's theorising about post-feminism is critical of it. That makes sense. A little bit kind of grammatically confusing. But if you're writing your essay on this, you need to get really clear on that point. A third approach is that, or a third way of understanding what post-feminism is, is that it's a critical approach. So this would be someone who would call herself a post-feminist. A critical approach, theoretical, political approach intended to capture entanglements of feminist and anti-feminist stances and practices. Again, I say it again. <laughs> so this would be a critical approach a critical approach or a, the, a political approach, post-feminism is an approach, someone could be a post-feminist, that it is trying to capture and understand entanglements of feminism and anti-feminism. It's trying to make sense of these kinds of contradictions and is kind of um, planting a flag in there. So... Um, The Pedwell reading that I gave you, it was like a keyword reading on feminism. There's another one in that same book by um, Gens about post-feminism. Um, and uh, she refers to it as a complex resignification of feminism that harbours within itself the threat of backlash as well as the potential for innovation. Right, so this would be someone, this is the kind of thing someone would adopt if they want to say, yeah, I'm a post-feminist. I get that there's risky stuff going on here, potentially backlashy type anti-feminist stuff, but I also think that there might be something more promising in here as well. Right, so not as critical of post-feminism as um, Gill. McRobbie describes it as the coexistence of neoconservative values, for example, around gender, sexuality and family life, and a process of liberation in regard to choice and diversity in domestic, sexual and kinship relations. Right, so these two things are going on at once. There's this like what she calls neoconservative values around gender roles, what it is to be feminine, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, choosing to change your name to your husband's name, choosing to stay home and have kids, but also resignifying that as feminist, as choice, as liberation. So she also says, McRobbie also says, that it's the coexistence of feminism as common sense, of course, Women are equal. Of course, women shouldn't be objectified. Of course, women should have choices. And also as a 
as being fiercely repudiated and almost hated. Right? These are just variations on this kind of same idea that there's this deep contradiction. She says, uh, Gens says that it incorporates, commodifies, depoliticizes, and parodies feminist ideas and terminology. Right? So it incorporates them, it takes them into account, it subscribes to them and agrees with them at the same time as it commodifies them, so it turns them into something that is a matter of like consumer lifestyle and consumer choice, depoliticizes it, and um, which is you know a bad thing. Um, and parodies it, makes fun of it at the same time. Does this ring any bells for you? Does this seem, Lucy, why are you nodding? Um, doing my essay on Gil. Yeah. Um, I feel very familiar with a lot of these concepts. Yeah. Um, and reading it, it just made a lot of um, sense, especially having grown up with, you know, a lot of the, the social media stuff. And I specifically stayed away from social media and I still do because I see it as such um, a bizarre <laughs> environment um, for women and for um, discussion on these ideas. And this is something I used to argue with my mother about all the time as well. <laughs> yeah. Because she yeah. was all like, ban the burqa. And I was like, but that's a choice in itself. Yeah. And then I kind of evolved in this kind of thinking and the more I read it the more I can make sense of the way I approach these things as yeah. a kid because we did like pop feminism at school yeah. and you get very into that mindset of oh it's my choice and it's empowerment and how great is confidence but in itself it's still a manipulation yeah of those concepts yeah some other students that I've taught in the past have expressed it this way, that it feels a bit like as a woman or someone who identifies as a woman, that you are damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. That is just what I was thinking. That's how I thought about it. Yeah. Can you elaborate? Well, yeah, because the choice feminism thing, like I get, I really do get that by choosing to wear makeup, do my hair, shave, whatever, that that's, that's not a choice in isolation. Like yeah. I have all this context from my life and all these beauty standards being pushed onto me. Yeah. But like, even if I choose not to do that, that's still, you know, someone's idea. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, yeah, it literally is the end of the period of my kind of position is maybe you still do work for you. Like, <laughs> like, that's what I think. And I think like, yes, it's not feminist to wear makeup, but I enjoy it. I know it's not in isolation, but at this point, I don't have the mental energy to care. Yeah. I yeah. I think that exhaustion is also characteristic of being constantly put in that position where, yeah, it doesn't matter what choice you make, someone will tell you it's not feminist or that it is feminist. Plenty of people tell you wearing makeup is feminist. Like it's, there's no agreement that it is or it isn't. But it is it's really difficult terrain, I think, to operate in um, when you're trying to work out, you know, what it might be to live a feminist life in these kinds of circumstances. Okay, so let's talk about the third part of the lecture. Six, I'm calling these concerns and insights that emerge from studies of post-feminism. Six concerns and insights. So these are things... That, that scholars studying this stuff are worried about 
um, and, you know, kind of observations or insights that they've developed about what, why we might be worried about some of these things. Okay. So the first is that, you know, we've talked about this repeatedly already, post-feminism is inherently contradictory. It is feminist and anti-feminist, liberating and repressive, productive and obstructive of progressive social change. That's a, a quote from Prujansky. I think we've covered that one, so I'm not going to go on too much about that. The second thing is that it's deeply consumerist. Um, do you all, God, you might be too young. Do you remember when Lady Gaga um, wore that dress made of um, meat? Okay, thank God. <laughs> no, no, I don't think Madonna's post-feminist. Maybe she is. Madonna's more complicated, though, and earlier than post-feminism. Yes, but that could be a very interesting discussion. Yes, but no. So when Lady Gaga wore that dress and it was just like that could she, I cannot imagine a more um, blatant statement of the kind of glamorization of just consumption for the sake of consumption, right? She's just like, I can do whatever I want. I don't care how absurd it is, how many animals had to die, how expensive it is, you know, like it's just this like really um, hyper, hyper, exaggerated expression of um, of consumption as a feminist value in and of itself, right? She's wearing this dress. She's come up, you know, she's kind of, um, she's presenting herself as an object of sexual desire in this way that is just like really, really salacious. Hamish, what's going on? I can see thoughts on your face. I think... So are you saying that by wearing that dress, she was being like an example of that consumption? Yes. I think I kind of took it as the opposite, that yep. there's all these people wearing like $1,000 dresses to yep. this red carpet that they have spent ridiculous amounts of money on and, you know, probably like one of a kind like things that people are then going to try and get that look and recreate, but they're never going to be able to afford that kind of look. Yeah. And I kind of took it as a rejection of all that of, well, I'm not going to spend, you know, yeah. Like, you know, I'm not going with like, you know, a designer dress that no one is ever going to be able to afford. And I'm not going to come here and look pretty and, you know, like fit yeah. this mold of what, you know, a beautiful woman should be on a red carpet. I am going to come here as absolutely disgusting as I possibly could be <laughs> and kind of reject all that, like, high-class fashion. Do you think we could both be right? Absolutely. I'm just trying to, okay, I'm going to share with you the um, image. Oh, I bet it did. Uh, okay. So this is you know, what she looked like, right? So I think, you know, it seems very plausible to me that Hamish and I are both right. Like, yes, maybe she's, look, I mean, that is some hypersexualization in that shot right there, right? 
hyper hyper sexualization so she's and that would be like a kind of quintessential example of post-feminism that she's simultaneously critiquing if you take Hamish's interpretation the you know the sexualization commodification and elitism of like celebrity women's bodies at the same time as she's reproducing it in the same moment right she's doing both those things it's a very good point though Hamish I'm going to make a little note to myself next year's lecture so um the point is that there is here um what Nancy Fraser has called an unholy alliance between feminism and capitalism. And this is not really what those first and second waves of feminism were about. Um, that it's the emphasis on fame and sexuality um, with kind of limited criticism of exploitation, particularly around um, poverty, right, and economic inequality. You can think about um, Beyonce here as well. Like she's another example. She kind of parades this, particularly in the Lemonade videos, like she parades this um, image of, you know, there's literally that video where she literally runs around like liberating these black women from hair salons and stuff. But there's no account in any of that of um, the economic inequality between someone like Beyonce and someone in a poor African-American neighbourhood in Philadelphia right she just um she's selling an image of feminism um she's selling an impossible image of feminism as liberation that is dependent on consumption high levels of expensive consumption and that is primarily about lifestyle choices right um the idea that you are empowered when you curate yourself is um is very much kind of anchored in this idea that your self-definition is a matter of consumption and lifestyle choice. Not politics, not intellect, not humour, not accomplishment, maybe accomplishment, but as a lifestyle thing, right? And it's expressed in, you know, going to the right yoga class, wearing the right yoga pants, that kind of thing. Um, and because of that, Beyonce aside, it is predominantly white, it's predominantly middle class. It's predominantly cisgendered. It's really not very intersectional, right? Like a lot of the um, accomplishments of third wave feminism around diversifying feminism are getting lost in this emphasis on consumption. Okay, the third thing connected to this is the emphasis on the sexy body as the source of your femininity and the source of your power as a woman. Femininity is a bodily property. That's what Gill argues. And there's also this resurgent, these resurgent ideas about natural sexual difference, right? That women are naturally by virtue of their biology different from men. And that the way to empower themselves is to embrace that difference right, which is obviously exclusionary of very many people. Okay, the fourth thing is that it's highly individualist, highly individualistic. So the thing, like I said earlier, the thing that needs to be changed here is the self. 
not society, not the law, not politics. The thing that needs to change is the self. You need to better curate yourself, better present yourself, make better lifestyle choices, make better self-care choices. Hands up if that is a familiar message to you. Definitely familiar to me, for sure. The rise of um, psychology is partly associated with that, right? It's about you have to resolve your own individual baggage, right? And you will generate the solution to that. It's not a matter of there being kind of societal reasons why you might feel anxious or depressed, right? It's about your individual self-improvement. Um, it's particularly expressed as self-care, self-confidence, self-love, sex positivity. A lot of those messages are actually highly, highly individualistic. Okay. The fifth one, and this one I just find particularly striking, I think it's particularly insightful, is the use of irony, right? So irony is like the use of language or practices that that are deliberately the opposite of what you're trying to say and they're meant to convey um, that you know what you're doing and you're being intentionally kind of wryly humorous, like the Wanda Bright ad. It's kind of the opposite of what she's trying to say. So this um, ironic and mocking stance towards traditional modes of femininity and gender roles Rather than critiquing them outright, you mock them. You imitate them or you parody them like in that ad. You don't actually just come out and say, objectificate, I'm, not, I'm against objectification, sexual objectification of women's bodies or I'm against traditional gender roles. Instead, you kind of play around with them, right, in ways that are meant to be a bit humorous. And this has, like I said earlier, this inoculation effect. It makes it incredibly difficult to be critical. It's very clever and um, powerful, for want of a better word. So um, it allows people to have it both ways, right? The woman in the Wanderbra ad, Beyonce, whoever, can have it both ways. They can be articulating a feminist ideal and being self-aware about that at the same time as they violate that ideal in exactly the same breath, right? And it's often deployed as a kind of test of sophistication and cool because if you want to critique it, someone can easily say, A, you're a prude, B, you don't get it. Right, and there are many, many more ads since that Wonderbra ad. I don't know if any of you have seen the diesel ads. They're ads for diesel jeans and they're just these topless women with these, you know, sort of conventionally perfect bodies in these incredibly sexualized positions. Um, and and th these are recent, right? These are in the last few years. And Diesel are doing exactly the same thing, right? They're trying to say, we know that the, like this is not how you're meant to present women, but we're doing it anyway. And then there's kind of nothing you can say, like that there's nothing that you can say to that without someone saying you're being a prude or you've missed the point. 
or it's meant to be ironic, right? And then you're just kind of completely disabled and your only option is to just stand your ground and be firm and and then it's difficult not to feel like what Sarah Ahmed calls a feminist killjoy. Does that make sense? No, I've lost you. Can someone try and re-explain that point? Go on, Hamish. Unfortunately, you're cursed by expressing everything on your face. <laughs> That's a problem I also have. I can't just have a neutral expression. I feel like it did make sense, but now asking me to rearticulate it is. Um, yeah, no, I feel like I kind of get it. <laughs> just give it a go. Someone else will jump in and help you out because you're all so nice to each other. Um, so no it's. Pressure. Like, yeah, you can basically do anything now and frame it as this is feminist because it's a woman's choice. Mm -hmm. So you can reenact all these things that are, you know, that women have been traditionally forced to do or pressured to do yeah, and the ways that they've been traditionally objectified. Yeah. Um, but any objection to that or any critique of that can immediately be shut down by just saying, well, this is my choice. Yeah. Um, so even, you know, that's not really challenging the way that women are seen or perceived because they're still fitting into those same roles. Yeah. But it's just like, as soon as this like idea of agency and well, this is my choice and I'm an independent woman comes up, then that kind of shuts down anything, anything yeah. else that kind of, it stops you critiquing what that personal choice might be contributing to the way that yes. women are seen as a whole. Exactly. It's exactly right. And not only that, but the point about kind of this ironic and mocking stance is that it's cool. So if you want to critique it, you are uncool, right? Have you, I'm, I would bet my money that some of you have had experiences with friends or something where someone's like made a sexist joke or, um, or you know, done something that you find a bit like offensive from a feminist perspective and you call it out and they kind of imply that you've, you've missed the point or you're uncool in some way. Or you've seen this happen to other people. If you haven't, good, great. I love that but most of you will, will have, or if you haven't, you will. Um, right. Question, Sam. Yeah. I guess how is this, has this not always been the case? So no. Like when, let's in the other waves where feminists would critique things, would it land better? Like okay. was there not this same response? No. Okay. So people would say, um, you know, if, if you sort of saw an ad and you said, God, that's, that ad is so sexist, people might disagree with you, but not because they think, not, not in this ironic way, okay. right? It was a much more, um, like, straightforward argument where I think it's objectifying to, present, to represent women in this way and you say, you know, someone might disagree with you because you know, basically they're just misogynist. 
Okay. Right. But now because of the choice thing, it gets more complicated. Yeah. Okay. So, so more binary in the past. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't this clever manoeuvring so much. Yeah. Like people who hated feminists just accused them of being man-hating, hairy, armpitted, bra-burning, you know, radicals. Whereas now it's like, oh, you're, un- you're uncool. This is feminist. And they use, like the feminism gets used against you. That didn't used to be the case. Does that make sense? Even when I was young, it wasn't like it wasn't like this so much. Like it was much more, um, you know, me and all my friends, we thought that Wonder Brad was terrible. Um, and that was kind of, you know, that was kind of it. You know, I'd never, I never imagined that um, 20 years from then or 25 years from then that Diesel would come out with ads that were worse. I thought that it was kind of over. Maybe I was naive. I was definitely optimistic. Okay. So, um, and yeah. Sorry. Um, it's been, um, I've been thinking about this ever since um, we started talking about uh, fourth wave and post-feminism is that there is a striking similarity between all this and what started in the nineties and went into the early two thousands. Um, the uh, phenomenon of ladism. Yes. It's, it's very strikingly similar. So I'm thinking yeah. like, for example, the famous sitcom um, uh, Men Behaving Badly, where yeah. at the same time it was making fun of these, these men who were, you know, going on about girls and booze and yeah. farting and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it came across as very cool. Um, yeah. It made misogyny cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, but at the same time that they were always, they always got their comeuppance because the the women in it were were generally portrayed as strong women who were, wouldn't take their nonsense, right? Yeah. But at the same time, they were portrayed as being less funny as a result. Yeah, um, it's, yeah. It, it's a very very interesting uh, phenomenon because I was reading about it fairly recently, um, and I've watched that sitcom before. Um, um, but basically what everyone said is that ladism broadly died out with the death of the lad magazines. What's interesting is that this type of thing clearly hasn't died out um, anywhere near as much, but uh, ladism as a, as a product of the nineties, it almost looks like post-feminism is a, is a reaction to it almost as well. Um, I think they're two, I think that they're the same thing, like in the same way that a show like that and, um, you know, magazines and so on, they criticise misogyny. So they're taking feminism into account at the same time as they're keeping it cool. Right. But there's now they don't, they sort of don't no longer um, uh, praise that sort of bad boy sort of lifestyle. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. What do you guys think? Is this still sort of, you know, branches of popular culture that glamorise misogyny? Yeah. I think so too. I think there's a lot of shit out there on the internet that I don't see because my algorithms don't deliver it to me. But I was fascinated by the intel ideology. Yeah. And I would go through the forums all the time. Yeah. If I wanted to traumatize yourself. Well, I don't understand like where they're coming from. Yeah. I was like, well, maybe I don't know. I think this is a very common 
thing to do. I can fix it. <laughs> Everyone's like, maybe I can do something about it. But then it got like the more I read it, I was like, this is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So the incel thing, it's it's an extension of yeah, men behaving badly. Yeah. Right? Like they're on the same continuum. Yeah. So recently, um, I'm not sure if anyone else knows this, but like the fresh and fit like podcast has been like um, kind of in the mainstream in terms of you've got these two men saying um, Yeah. It basically saying, you know, um, I can do what I want in my relationships with women right. in terms right. of like cheating on them, right? That type of thing. Yeah, but the woman has to be faithful to me, right? And like that's you know very much that idea yeah. is yeah. still like present. Yeah, yeah. So some of the examples in the Gill reading, like I read it again yesterday, and I was, like they're so horrifying examples of rating trying to find the best boobs in Britain and um, and trying to calculate the amount of money that you're paying for sex by adding up all of the, um, like what you spend on dinner and flowers and stuff, your girlfriend, and dividing it by, quote, unquote, the number of shags, and then saying if it's under 10 pounds, then she's like this kind of a hooker, et cetera. So, like that stuff is out of control. And I looked at that and I was like, well, I mean, this article is like 15 years old now. But I think that that stuff still does exist. Yeah. And maybe more hidden, you know, like I think in some ways the extremes, it's, I don't know if that kind of thing would exist in a kind of mainstream magazine anymore, but it maybe does in, yeah, podcasts and other kinds of things that are, yeah, easier to distribute. There was a lot of like backlash to that, you know, like a certain conception of feminism amongst men. Yeah. Like, you know, that idea that, you know, feminism is seen as kind of a way to put men down rather than yeah. like bring them up. Yeah. And that kind of created its own like, you know, movement in a way of, you know, you've got men's rights activists, yeah. for example. Yeah. You know, all, yeah. all these, you know, influences and stuff talking, you know, fiercely against what their conception of feminism yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than like seeing it as like multifaceted. Yeah. And, like, yeah. Yeah. There being different approaches. Yeah. yeah. I think that's like, you know, I just, as someone with all left, I'm interested in the far right because I think you should be aware of that sort of thing to be able to navigate more stuff and make more research as to what we are with that. Pretty much, like, these all right content creators are way bigger than people think they are. Like, there are mm. millions of people today that, like, go, yeah. And mm. there's so many of them. And they're not being, they're not going on there and being like, well, I want, like, the traditional. They're just straight up being like, women are subhuman, like, mm. and these get millions of views. And it's kind of like, to use an example, the shooting that happened in with this white supremacist shooter and the manifesto in all parrots those talking points mm. from these youtubers and Tucker Carlson from Fox News. Mm. So I think it's worse and almost more accepted, but if you don't know about the mm. right mm. and that sort of community, you're not gonna see it. But when you start seeing it, you never stop seeing it. Mm. 
it's pretty horrifying. Yeah, that's why I'm <laughs> I'd like to not be, but. Let's bring it back to post-feminism and keep going. I think I want to end on a slightly more optimistic note, to see if I can challenge Gemma's pessimism. Um, not that we're ending now, don't get too excited. Okay, the sixth point um, about, or the sixth concern raised by um, people who study post-feminism is how much it resonates with neoliberal ideas of subjectivity, right? So these emphasise agency over structure, that it is your responsibility as an individual woman to use your agency to fix your problems rather than to address structural issues that are causing your problems. And it has a kind of false idea that we are autonomous, right, that we're not shaped by the circumstances in which we live and that our choices are completely free. So Gens says that the neoliberal subject, the post-feminist subject, is this self-regulating and enterprising individual whose consumption patterns come to be seen as a source of power and choice. Right, so think about like a YouTube influencer is going to the right, you know, Pilates studio, wearing the right clothes, drinking the right smoothies, whatever, whatever. Your consumption choices are taken to be the signal of your empowerment, your individual empowerment. But as most of these scholars agree, this idea of choice is an illusion. Right, the choices that we make are in fact constrained. McRobbie says, as the overwhelming force of structure fades, so also does the capacity for agency increase. So this idea of the neoliberal subject is appealing because it makes us feel like it's in our control as women to fix this situation. Right? It's not a structural issue. It's my own issue. And I have, you know, the, this kind of discourse of girl power and stuff. I have power. I can fix this for myself. Um, and this appears in all kinds of things, not just those kind of superficial lifestyle things, but also I don't know if any of you have heard of Sheryl Sandberg and her book Lean In. So she was uh, Facebook, if I'm not mistaken, like very senior at Facebook, maybe Google, one of them. Um, and she wrote this you know, quote unquote feminist book called Lean In, which suggested that if women want to um, gain power, intentional use of words there, if they want to gain power in the corporate world, they need to basically behave like men and, um, and lean into the kind of aggressive strategies that men are perceived. I don't mean, I think that is also an oversimplification, but that men are perceived to, um, to use in the workplace. Right, And so this idea that if you are not succeeding in the workplace, if you're not getting promoted, if you're not getting equal pay, it's because you're not leaning in hard enough. Right. Um, this is what Gill calls the shift from objectification to subjectification. It is this idea that as a woman, when I choose to lean in, when I choose to dress sexy, when I choose to go to yoga, et cetera, et cetera, that um, that is an expression of my subjectivity and my agency, right? That's, that's what post-feminism promises us women. When you do those things, you are being a kind of free agent. Whereas Gill would say, actually, there's still objectification. You're still 
an object of power relations that are making you want to make those choices. Does that make sense? Kind of, I'm getting a few half nods, I'll carry on. Um, the emphasis here is, of course, on self-surveillance, monitoring and self-discipline. And as Gil suggests, there is a remarkable resonance between those qualities and those of more traditional gender roles way back to like the Victorian era, where women went to finishing school to learn how to walk and talk and hold their hands and, you know, do all of these things. So like an extraordinarily high level of self-surveillance, self-discipline, self-regulation. Okay, so what does this all have to do with power? So one obvious, I'm going to give you a few different options here. First, I'm going to talk about power as empowerment. Is that what's going on? Don't know. Second is the idea that power is a possession, a commodity. Third is that power is domination, right? These are ideas we've come across before. And then the fourth is this um, Foucauldian post-structuralist, anti-essentialist idea of power. Right, so we're going to go through all these different forms of power and try to unpack what they would look like um, for a post-feminist, someone who's expressing or someone who wanted to criticise post-feminism. So post-feminism is sold to us as empowerment. Literally T-shirts with girl power written on the front, white ones designed to be worn tightly. Right? Um, so there is a kind of tone and a kind of flavour and a feeling associated with that that is meant to be appealing, right? It's meant to make women feel strong. But also um, there's also a sense, you know, some, some feminist scholars have talked about how sometimes that idea of empowerment gets latched onto traditional ideas of femininity, like being caregivers, being maternal, et cetera, and that this is a source of women's power. Um, either way, it's kind of quite um, essentialist, right? It rests on an essentialist idea of what it is to be a woman. It is a reaction to what, um, particularly in second wave feminism, some people saw as an overemphasis on victimisation and domination and oppression. So a reaction to that. But it is predominantly individual. Individual women are empowered, but women as a collective, not so much. Right? That's not nearly as much a part of the discourse. Um, Amy Allen calls it power feminism in that article. Right? It's quite a masculinist tone often, even at the same time as it can kind of strangely be connected to these softer feminist qualities of being maternal and so on. Um, it's quite self-centred. It's quite oriented towards control. And there really appears to be no end goal, right? I'm empowered for the sake of being empowered. But in order to achieve what? Like, what is the ultimate outcome here? Is it to hold on to Roe versus Wade? Is it to get rid of the gender pay gap? 
No, it's none of those things. It's just empowerment for the sake of empowerment, right? So that's the kind of idea of empowerment that gets sold to us. But most critics of post-feminism will say, will point out how flawed this idea of empowerment really is. So if it, that's not what's going on, is it power as a possession, right? So this is another possible interpretation of how power is operating in post-feminism. Power is a commodity and women are taking it back. Oprah will tell us that's how it's done. Take back your power, right? It's a piece of pie and you can take it off someone else in your life who has it and is exerting control over you. But some um, feminist scholars argue that this is problematic because that idea of power is, so a commodity approach to power, as we've discussed repeatedly in this unit, is a little bit underdeveloped. But also the idea of power that it promotes is that masculinist idea of power as control, um, as kind of zero sum and so on. And so many feminists will argue, you, as Audre Lord famously said, that you can't dismantle the you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools, right? You need different tools. We can't use that form of power if we really want to transform patriarchy, right? So simply taking it from men, taking that same form of power from men, isn't going to solve the problem. So then there's another idea: this idea of power as domination. But it's, um, there's a lot that goes missing in that idea, right? The idea that power is domination suggests that all women who engage in behaviour that we might call post-feminist are completely dominated. It's quite an absolute idea and it probably over-eggs the situation, right? Because it disregards any possibility that women are working with any agency at all. So basically... It's too totalizing. Right? So that leaves us with three ideas of power, all of which aren't really helping us address the problem of patriarchy. Right? The problem of empowerment is a bit of an illusion. The idea that power is a possession isn't going to help us resolve the problem. The idea of power as domination doesn't give any space for women's agency. That doesn't seem right either. And so most Gill and many others um, accordingly turn to post-structuralist accounts of power like Foucault's that we've already talked about. So they tend to be anti-essentialist. What does that mean? It means that they're not sort of relying on this idea that there's like an innate difference between men and women due to biology or, you know, psychology. They have different brain makeup or anything like Yeah, They're questioning that men and women have these, yeah, like essential differences to them. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Well put. Um, they tend to be also anti-foundational. So we've discussed that before with Foucault. They tend to not necessarily have particularly strong kind of meta, um, metaphysical understanding of what it is to be a subject. Just ignore that point. It's too complicated. 
I don't have time to explain what I meant by that. Um, okay, so let's recap then what Foucault has to say that is relevant here, right? So one is that subject formation is always an effect of power. Translation, Leah? I guess how we um, construct ourselves is always based on the power relations that are around us, like the norms and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yep. That makes sense to everyone. Yep. Another point that he makes is that there are different sites and techniques of power, many of them, right, that contribute to subject formation in ways that are often messy and can be unpredictable. I'll say that again. So he says, you know, he's he wasn't interested centrally in the state and this kind of conventional foci of our kind of theories of power. He was interested in the many, many, many micro techniques and sites of power, right, that we're subject to all the time. Because there were so many and they're so micro, they shape us in ways that can be unpredictable. We did start to talk about this when we talked about Foucault, this idea that um, there's no kind of single master conductor that is trying to shape women to be kind of in this particular form. It's actually much messier than that, right? There are lots and lots of different forces that can work in different ways. They may tend in a particular direction. They may tend to try to shape women in a particular way, but they don't always succeed, right? And, you know, we need only look around at the real-life women that we know who are all different. Okay. So these sites and techniques of power include discourse. Discourses, for example, around things like self-care, well-being, etc. Um, they include power knowledge, power slash knowledge. So this like deep connection between what we know and what kind of sources of power contributed to that and result from that. Uh, they include discipline from others, from society and also self-discipline. They include what he calls dividing practices, dividing the normal from the abnormal, the healthy from the sick, the mad from the sane, the criminal from the law-abiding citizen, etc. dividing practices, and various other things, right? Like there's, he's got a kind of whole list. Those are some of the ones that tend to get used a lot in feminist theory. Okay. Um, so many of the critiques offered by um, Gill and McRobbie and Gentz and these others who are looking at post-feminism take this theoretical approach, right? They fundamentally question the idea of subject formation as independent, right? They don't buy this idea that an empowered woman can wholly and freely make completely free choices independent of the social circumstances in which she lives, right? And as soon as you accept that, then that really superficial idea of empowerment becomes much more complicated and difficult to kind of swallow. Nick, your face is being expressive. Uh, nothing, that's all right. Something was going on? No, no, no. <laughs> all right. 
you're all going to try and stay deadpan now. So I don't ask you, but it's actually very good. It's, it's a good way for me to work out what's going on. Okay. Um, it also fundamentally questions the idea of choice, which is really at the heart of post-feminism. So as with all this kind of stuff, it's, it's on a spectrum, right? So if there was like completely free choice here where we were completely unconstrained and we had no influence whatsoever. And over here we have absolute domination where we have no choice at all. A kind of Foucauldian theorist is operating here, right? It's, it's neither the case that we are completely dominated nor that we are completely free. So yes, we can make choices and we do make choices evidently all the time, but they're not completely free. So it's like to get your head around this and to be able to express it, for example, in an essay, you have to be able to use that kind of language that resides in that middle zone of that spectrum. Um, okay. Does that make sense? You're with me? Okay. So what I want us to discuss now then in the little time that we have left is then like I would really like to know more about what you think about this. So Gil, the article that I gave you is kind of her clearest account of post-feminism, but she has written more recent articles. And if I was allowed to make you read an endless amount, I would have asked you to read them as well. So in 2016 and 2017, she published articles um, question, so people had started to say, since she published that first one that you read, the Me Too movement took off, for example. And there were also, I think, some significant changes in some corners of popular culture. And so some people were sort of saying, actually, maybe her pessimistic outlook is too pessimistic. Maybe there is more change out there than we think. And maybe there's something to this post-feminism that is not just about the, the risks of receding into um, and kind of undoing feminism, but maybe there really is some actual possibility for some innovation, right, in a good way. And so um, when I think about this, I think about things like um, Orange is the New Black. Have you seen that on Netflix? Um, what else? So Orange is the New Black, completely female cast. They're all in prison. Um, and heaps of them are queer, one of them's trans, they're of all different kind of racial backgrounds and class backgrounds, which is somewhat unusual for a prison, but, you know, it is fiction. It's quite a radical departure, I think, from, um, you know, some of the kind of popular culture that's dominated since then. What other examples can you think of? The Handmaid's Tale is another one. It's pretty radical. It's not ironic. It's like outright critique of misogyny, unapologetic and extreme. What do you think? Do you think Gill's right? So her argument is that she, so she argues that she's still right. The post-feminism, she says, is um, devoid of political content, right? You can be feminist if you wear makeup, if you don't, if you're pro-life, if you're pro-choice, if you take your husband's name, if you don't take your husband's name. Like it's got no political content. It's got, it's got no agenda for structural change of any description um, and it's not allowed to be angry. So that kind of ironic and mocking stuff is still dominant. You're not allowed to be an angry feminist or you get called, as I said, Sarah Ahmed, feminist killjoy. 
So she stands by her stance. What do you think? Wow, that's bad for long. Let's say more newer. <laughs> a more recent, like, I know she said she stands by it. Yeah. But, like, I actually, for this reading, wrote some things up with this little yeah. word. But something I feel like she kind of misses out and is something that to me is like 2020 onward. Yeah. Is this, like, completely, uh, shifting is not really the right word, almost like a transformation. Like there is feminist theory from that 80s onwards, it's pro-sex work and pro-pornography, kind of precursor to the post-feminist stuff. Yeah, I just yeah. like to see it like, with like the recent stuff, just yeah. the last few years. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if it shifted or you might have just become more aware of it. I think it's probably always been more common than we think. Yeah, but this like online version of it. Right. Like, right. Years, partly because everything online is boomed yeah 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 i don't know whether that has really like i think it's changed i don't think it's changed the overall tone of the discussion because i think a lot of it previously was like you know questioning like okay do people really have a choice when they're doing this or they're doing it out of financial need and i think when it all sort of moved online over covid i think the conversation still kind of kept that same tone. It was just like, okay, well, are they just doing this because they've lost their job and they can't leave the house? And so OnlyFans okay. is a way of making a living that you can do in a pandemic and you're not at risk of losing your job. Like, I think there's still sort of questions of whether it's that, you know, what choice do you have? Like whether it is empowering or, and like that, to me, I think is something that comes down to like the individual situation. But I think the overall conversations are still asking that same question of, is it empowerment and choice or is it necessity? And yeah. it's just kind of shifted from talking about sex work in general like that, sort of really shifting the conversation to this OnlyFans online platforms kind of context. What do other people think? 
Um, I guess I'm going to go away from the sex work thing because I was thinking about something different. Um, what she says about um, post-feminism being kind of completely devoid of political critique or whatever, um, I kind of feel like that's not very reflective of reality maybe now. Like I was thinking of Grace Tame and all the um, yeah. legislation on domestic violence and all the stuff going on there. That's about structural change. Well, I guess it's about, yeah, it is about structural change. Yeah, um, they talk about the contouring parliament house yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And, like, society, um, cultural values about gender roles and gender norms and how that contributes to violence against women and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think she's kind of a bit um, extreme in saying that it's completely devoid. And then, I mean, other things I think she probably is quite right about. Um, but, yeah, she just goes a tad far, I think. Lucy, what do you think? Do you, think- you know that I was going to say something? <laughs> Could you tell? <laughs> um, I read, because I'm doing Gil for my essay, I've read, like, as much of her stuff as I possibly can. And um, part of her, I think it was a 20, maybe 2017 article where she was talking about how media constructions of actual feminism are so problematic because I think um, back to what you're saying, Leah, is that like post-feminism as a concept and the kind of cult of confidence is what she calls it and all the empowerment stuff doesn't have any substance because the actual feminism is most of the time quite muted and the only time that it's reported on in the media is when it adheres to the empowerment and cult of confidence stuff that's like really palatable to a lot of audiences anything that's slightly too political or too radical is not reported on because it doesn't adhere to news values that are going to be like acceptable. Mm-hmm. So I think what she's saying is that stuff still exists, but we don't know enough about it. And it's not um, really widely accepted enough to be something that could make change because it's very much divide and conquer. Um, like, you know, women over here who are radical, we don't like them. It's too hard, too political, too unpalatable, but empowerment as feminism is super palatable and we can all hear about it and we can all report on it it's very comfortable yeah nick what do you think what's your sense of you know um um well i think i've seen like feminist movements from south america and it's like very different over there for yeah example. About the femicides and um, like abortion, making legal abortion, uh, abortion legal. Yeah. Um, so would you say maybe post-feminism sort of universalizes feminism? Yes. Quite a bit. Um, I think there are some collectives out there that are trying to make structural changes. Um, but definitely in Australia and maybe other Western countries, when they're sort of putting that focus on individualism, mm. that's sort of um, like backing up patriarchy and that sort of whole structure of power. Mm. Um, so she's right in some ways, but maybe she's not looking at the whole world. Yeah, I think by her own admission she isn't, but, um, but it's quite common in Western scholarship to sort of put something at the she does it at the end of the article. Oh, by the way, I'm definitely not talking about everybody, um, but, you know, her sort of her imagination 
is, um, I mean, I really like Gil's work. I don't mean to criticise it terribly, but yeah, she her imagination is pretty is pretty limited. And I think um, there has been some interesting stuff that, again, if there was more time, like if I was allowed to make you read more, I would have asked you to read some other stuff. There's an interesting book come out that I haven't had a chance to read about post-feminism in Nigeria right and it's like an anthropological account of the rise of the neoliberal feminist subject in urban Nigeria like in Lagos and you know the kind of obsession with makeup and hair and you know all all of those aspects of the sensibility that Gil talks about but then Nick I think you're right there are also way more radical movements um, in other parts of the world as well and I think, yeah, the diversification of the conversation around post-feminism and whether or not it's leaking out of middle-class white cisgendered circles and into other circles is an interesting. I think that's what we're going to see more of over coming years in terms of scholarship in this area. What do other people think? Let me rephrase. I want you to tell me that Gil is wrong and that feminism is alive. Can you tell me that? Gemma doesn't think so. Well, I know. I'm kind of in like two ways about it because I think seeing the response to the that makes me think like, oh my God, it's alive. Look how many, not only women care, look how many people, like regardless yeah. of sex or gender, care. Yeah. So that makes me feel good about it. I just, I don't know, I feel like we're two steps forward one step back and I guess the problem I have with modern feminism is it does tend to be like you can tell us about it tends to be exclusionary sex workers and exclusionary maybe they're born female but they fit into like binary mm -hmm. gender stuff like there's mm -hmm. no mention of the trans in there in literally yeah. any of this that's right and that's like an important part of the conversation I think with abortion too, because it affects women's equal and trans men. Like it affects. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think we're missing. <laughs> I think we're missing some yeah. parts of the yeah. conversation. But I think, like, I've been doing queer activism stuff for like four, eight years now, and yeah. I think like it is getting better and that the spaces are becoming yeah inclusive. Yeah, but I don't know. And also, um, it tends to. I think, yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason for that is that post-feminism, because it has this emphasis on consumerism, straight cisgendered women are a big market, yeah. right? You, you can sell us yoga pants and all this other, I have yoga pants, I don't have fancy ones, I just have regular ones, but um, that's part of the reason why um, those exclusions persist, I think, yeah. is because of the emphasis on consumption yeah. and the idea that, yeah, certain women are easier to market to. Um, would you also say, in a way, it's like that idea of individuality yeah. as well yeah. like, plays into that yeah. because, like, because most of the population are, like, cisgender, yeah. for example. Yeah. Like, they're the ones in focus and they're yeah. the ones that, you know, Yeah. I guess I'm saying it would be nice. I'm agreeing. Yeah, 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 yeah I agree. More people were included. Maybe that yeah. could be a really positive step for feminism. Yeah. As no offense to men, but some men get upset that feminism is doing anything for them. I can't be like that. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah. My worry is that those groups will get included in the same way yeah. as like objects to be marketed to yeah. rather yeah. than like transformative political subjects. So pride is like, I don't know this today. And then yeah. pride is next month. You have to Yeah. It's a related discussion. Like in many ways, the queer movement has, I think, like suffers some of the same problems, the individualization, the kind of the neoliberal version of it. Um, yeah, more individual, less collective. There, are, like feminism, I don't think the queer movement is a singular thing. Yeah. But there are those branches of it that are like, I want to buy my wedding cake and have my expensive wedding the same as everyone else. It's the same. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised that like lesbianisms are more important groups too, because I feel like they have some of the people who are at like the forefront of the feminist movement. Yeah. So I don't know, it seems kind of a disservice to not mention that as much as to me at least. In terms of the reading? Yeah, like I I don't know. I was like the whole time I was reading, I was like, really? No mention? Like it, I think there's one very small mention of it in theory. Yeah. It was like and I was yeah. Like, Hello, yeah. Keep going. I used to have a bell hooks reading on, um, which is maybe more like what you're after on this list, but she has quite a different conceptualization of power and yeah. But I'll keep that in mind. Okay. That's all. I'm, it's not a critique of you. No, 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 it's not at all. Of the readings. I wish some aspects were Yeah, I'll take that on board. Other thoughts? We should probably vacate the room. People are supposed to come in, although they're not hovering out the door. Anyone um, else? Yeah, just uh, just quickly. Um, uh, in terms of uh, Gil's view about feminism, I don't think she's right. And the reason why I don't think she's right is I think that the waves are not lin linear, they're circular. So every time a new issue comes up, we see it go through at least the first three stages. So for example, uh, we uh, mentioned before that, um, uh, for example, uh, uh, sexual assault, things like that, that were, were a later issue. I mean, it goes through the stage. The first stage is the legal stuff, uh, you know, first wave. Then the second wave, the, the social stuff. What's the social, um, what, what's going on behind, you know, in society. And then also it goes on to the self and then rinse, wash, repeat with the next, the next issue. So I think in some ways um, the waves are circular and therefore I don't know quite where that fits with fourth wave. Um, I'm still thinking about it, but definitely the first three waves tend to repeat themselves. Um, with whatever the new issue is uh, of the day. Um, um, so I think it's, it's, it's odd to call it dead. Um, um, it's just not that just, uh, you know, it just doesn't take over like it used to be. Like it, it, when the first wave historically happened, that was what it was. And the second wave, that's what, what it was. Nowadays, it's sort of all of them at the same time. But um, yeah, like I said, it's a circle rather than a linear progression. There could be something in that. It's probably too big for us to unpack at 11.56 though. So we might have to leave it there and you can all ponder that thought. Um, all right. So next week is our last week. Um, we're doing post-humanism. Also a really great week. Jane Bennett is a really nice read. She's a little bit hard, but, you know, just go with it. Um, and uh, I'll be at Burwood again for anyone who wants to come here. Um, and also you can join online. Sound good? Super. All right. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next week. Thank Bye. you.